Hey, this is Nathan. I'm here with Jake. Hello, Jake. Hello, Nathan. We are here to talk to you before the program begins about something that, once again, I'll just say would mean a lot to me if some of you could help out with. We're still looking to hit some of our goals with our Patreon campaign and are still hoping that some of you out there would be willing to give $4 a month, $10 a month to help support the ongoing work of putting the booking together for you guys every month. Yeah, it, it is actually a surprising amount of work and it means time away from other things that we do. Brandon runs an oil business, as we've mentioned before, and that's one example. You'd, you'd be surprised how, much, how those things can add up for a project like this. But that's why we are looking to you, our beautiful, lovely supporters out there who listen to and enjoy this podcast. So if you are a beautiful and or lovely supporter, or if you're a hideous freak that sits in some basement playing an organ somewhere, either way, we'll take your money. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we should try that one again. Coming up next, the booking continues to discuss the Quick and the Dead, the Lula Moore novel, no, the Sharon Stone movie, no, the Quick and the Dead from Andy Wilson, the boys, a blur. My name is Nathan Opperson. I am your humble and obedient host. I am joined by Brandon Chastain, the PhD ABD. Brandon Chastain, what do you have to say for yourself? thought I was the scholar who's a baller of reading. What did I say? (laughs) You said the old one. PhD ABD. Oh, no, no, no. no. I'm sorry. I'm both. Yes, you are both. A man can be your many men, Brandon. Yes. Just like that character in Split. (laughs) Just like that character in Split. (laughs) You're never more than one of them at a time. No, never. You lock people in your basement? I do. And <laughs> what happens to those people? You uh, teach them literature or anything? Yeah, I do. They hate it. <laughs> That's really the only way you can get people to read nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> ah, yes. I love it when I introduce Brandon. And I equally love it when I introduce Jake Benzel, the pastor who's the master of reading. What else is Jake? Well, he's Commander Daddy. We established that not too long ago. No doubt. Commander Daddy himself. How's the uh, how's the daddying going there, Jake? It's going very well. Lots of very happy of Jakes running around. Very happy of Jakes. Do you feel that they combine a healthy love for you with a healthy fear for you? Absolutely. If by combine you mean they're just terrified of me. <laughs> why are they? Why would you say they're terrified of you? Would it be like the beatings and the yellings and the... Probably that, yeah. Do you lock them in the basement and teach them literature, Brandon style? Teaching them literature, giving them something to do while they're locked in the basement, sort of a new idea for me. I might recommend having them read... Uh, if you wanted to be a jerk, you could make them read Faulkner. What's the other books that we hate? The Jungle Book. Oh, yeah, you could make them read, uh, you could make them read that seal story. Yes, over and over and over and over. All right, guys, you ready to dive back into N.D. Wilson's Boys of Blur? Yeah, let's go. Let's do if, it. Let me hear your excitement. Yay. Huzzah! <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to remember if they had a, bo- a football yell. Storm on, Taper! Storm on! Uh, I guess I will just use this to segue into another thing that I wasn't super crazy about, which is the character of Cotton. 
Actually, I'm just not a big cotton fan, I have to say. I agree. Cotton kind of stood in for the bigger weaknesses of the, Are we talking about this now? Yeah. Weaknesses. It's a good book. Yeah, oh, he's, buy a he's copy lame. for your 13-year-old boy. He'll like it. For yeah. your nine-year-old boy. My, my son, not many books that he has taken and hid under his pillow so that he could read after bed. Mm-hmm. This is one of them. So. Yeah. But we did want to talk about some of the weaknesses just because it's interesting to talk about some of the weaknesses. So go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, one of the bigger weaknesses of the novel is um, I lost my train of thought. What I'm waiting for you to say is that he's just a device to move the plot That's forward. Right. Yeah. So he's he, oh, the only reason Cotton is in the book is because he's a convenient plot device. And everything he does drives he either by just randomly running into his cousin and bringing him out into the fields to go see and then getting stones and, and then getting away, scared and running away. Yeah. Not before. being scared, but running back. Yeah. And then he right gets back. sick just in time to motivate our hero to undertake his quest. Yeah. I actually don't He's sort mind. of a MacGuffin, isn't he? Yeah, he's yeah. kind of a MacGuffin. And so, I mean, and it all then culminates in the biggest thing at the end when he plugs a Beowulf <laughs> translation. <laughs> rendering. Rendering. <laughs> a first rendering of Beowulf. Uh, Ah, we don't have to spend time beating up on that verse rendering of Beowulf, but uh, I, I dare say I think Cotton should have plugged Seamus Haney's Beowulf. If Maybe he was that's gonna... the one he was thinking of. That's probably. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I actually don't have a problem with someone being a plot device. Like I just said, I don't mind his mom and his sister being the virtuous feminine characters that he has to think about protecting from the monsters. That's fine. And basically, that's the only function that his little sister serves and kind of the only function that his mom really serves. You could argue she serves a few more, but for the purposes of my argument, we'll say, you know, it's a couple of ladies that are in there to just be sort of virtuous and threatened, and that's fine. I don't really have a problem with that. What I don't like is when it doesn't feel like it's coming inevitably out of the story, Yes, when it's not sort of artistically done. You have to have things like that in a book, but then you have to hide them. And the problem with Cotton is that it's not very well hidden. It just It's not bad to have a plot device. It's bad when someone feels like a plot device. And that's what happens with Cotton because he gets scared when he hasn't been scared before. He does things that are sort of inconsistent and his character sort of morphs and changes and his motivations kind of seem to morph and change just based on what the plot needs him to do. Yeah, and so he's prominent, so it strikes you in the face that he's just a plot device. And then the use of him is just too quick. There's no, you don't stay with him long enough for him to be a real character. And everything that he does is just, it's just there to get the plot moving. And so that's also then the weakness that is with like the grin or with Leo, who is very similar. And he uses Leo in a very similar way to Cotton. That Leo's just there. I have no clue who Leo was. At first, he seemed like this big, intimidating hero figure. And then he was this guy who was like using slang that almost like a dog figure at the end who went off to get killed. Well, that was disappointing because Leo seemed like a really interesting, cool, like I'd, I'd read a book about Leo's cool adventures. Idea. Yeah. This is this guy, this hermit that's lived in a shack all his life fighting evil to protect a town that probably doesn't care about him and he's got panthers and you know let's let's goes all the way back to max brother or whatever yeah and his and and the line of for that the line of people that leo comes from you know the jedi knights or whatever go back thousands of generations yeah but we don't get any hint of the world or the cosmos or the what's actually behind what's going on well the the issue some mystic yeah i mean the grandmother was a completely unnecessary figure in this book grandmother wisdom or whoever she was you could have just had leo fill that role and that would have given Leo something to do. 
made him a real character, real stakes. The boys could have gone because he went to die and they had to go, whatever. I, I don't know. There's so much more you could have done with that figure. The grandmother character was not needed. She's needed if you need to have a parallel to the mother of evil. I guess. Well, then get rid of Leo and make the grandmother interesting. I don't know. Or something. But I like Leo. Or give the mother a more prominent role and kind of draw out the parallels there. And then use Leo like he should have been, which is the hero, this weird hero in the woods and the sugar cane that, yeah. There were three places in the book, like actual pages, where a character suddenly entered and started doing things without a lot of setup. And I was just like, where's the setup? I should be. Mm -hmm. Uh, And those three places would be Cotton. You know, he shows up and then they're best friends and they're going on adventures together. And I kind of accepted that one just because I will give a story one of those. You know, I mean, like, okay, fine. He's new to town. You need somebody to draw him into this adventure. Fine. They're best friends. I've seen stories like, you know, that that work. Star Wars. Obi-Wan is Luke's beloved father figure who he's devastated to see die he's known for like an hour uh, he's known him for you know 24 hours at best Uh, meanwhile his aunt and uncle get burnt to a crisp and you know he's time to move on gleefully having adventures (laughs) so i I think that kind of stuff can work but you had cotton and but and then you had leo suddenly show up and start giving an exposition dump and you were just like i wish we would have had some time with Leo to kind of know who he is and, and get a grasp on him. And then when dad shows up, real dad shows up at the end, it's just kind of like we've heard, heard people talk about this guy, but we don't really – by the time we're beginning to figure out who he really is – He's dead. He's dead. It's inconsistent with the way that it introduces him. And as we're talking, it's becoming apparent to me one of the issues with this. It's an issue you get with a lot of stories is that there are just too many characters that aren't – and the characters aren't – don't have a purpose – like this, the the narrative usually comes out of the characters, and a good story lets the story run with what the characters would naturally do. And this could have been a perfectly fine story if you had cut out Cotton, just had Sugar, cut out Bobby, just had Sugar, and Charlie and Leo. Those were the three main players behind what was happening, and everybody else with Mac and the mom. They could still be in the story, but you, you get these extraneous characters who are just there. Or else you need to double the length of the book. Yeah, yeah that's the, exactly. Yeah, part of the difficulty of this book is it's sort of, to Wilson's credit, it's hugely ambitious. Everything he's trying to do in 200 pages with the, the genre mashups and the story he's trying to tell and the world he's trying to build and everything while keeping it fast-paced and action-packed and keeping you on the edge of your seat. He ends up cutting the places that actually i i i want to give him the credit of saying there's probably more to cotton that there's probably more to leo that just didn't end up making it in yeah i think that's probably true Um, i I think that's probably totally true i think having written things before nothing as good or as publishable as this oftentimes the discrepancy between what's in your head and what's on the page. And this might sound like a nasty knock against Nate Wilson, but what I'm trying to say is that I think it's something every writer faces, which is he probably understood things about Cotton's relationship with Charlie or or about the dad and the history and stuff about that, that he just simply didn't get a chance to communicate it all in 200 pages. And that might've been a editor, that might've been the format that he chose to work in, just didn't support as much as he was trying to do. It might've been his eyes were bigger than his stomach in terms of his ambition those are all okay things and understandable things and what's missing is that one like little detail that could give you that character well you almost get that with cotton in the field chase where cotton's carrying charlie on his back 
Charlie's waking up and saying things that, and so Cotton punches him and knocks him out yeah. to make it easier or whatever. Those, those little moments, they almost really work to give the color to Cotton that, that he needs to have. What color do you think that Cotton <laughs> needs to have there, Jake? Cotton is white. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> Didn't you know? That's true. Have you ever seen Cotton? I've picked Cotton before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I actually one of the it's interesting to hear you guys talk because one of the big things that I thought of as reading this book is I wish this was longer. Like we need more time to sort of live in this world and get to know these people and it would all have a lot more stakes, more weight. And I get that maybe a YA novel that's going to go on the YA shelf is basically this length and that's what he had to work with and that's fine. Well, I guess. Uh, I, my understanding and Brandon would know this better than either of us, but everything else he's tried to do has been these big, you know, 400 page novels in these two and three part or four part series, right? Like they're all huge. Mm -hmm. When I look for Boys of Blur, I don't know if I showed you, but like other Andy Wilson novels that were on that shelf, they were Harry Potter size novels. I was just thinking Harry Potter size because you always used to see little kids like at the beach or something with a book that was bigger than they were. You know, for for him to be to to say okay I'm gonna get out of that I'm gonna try something new try something different and see and if I can difficult pr- much more difficult yeah to try to make something that works in 200 pages that still tries to feel as big and epic as Beowulf at least if that's the ambition that's really hard and so that doesn't mean that he fully succeeded and one of the areas you see that come out clearest is this I I don't know I was really disappointed with the the big bad guy the grin they just the mom or the just the zombies just the zombies the mom was fine yeah the mom was the mom was, was pretty good she was scary but the grin themselves they just weren't terrifying I just felt again like I wish this was double the length because you just you want to sort of build up to them for a long time we needed to see somebody we knew be one of the grin maybe yeah oh for sure oh for sure and we needed that cotton or or sugar who i guess it was sugar saw somebody that he knew wasn't enough i mean if it's stephen king then it's going to be the racist cop i mean choose right create some nasty character just to punish (laughs) yeah that's one of the the wonderful things you can do in literature but nobody i mean nobody ended up being sucked in to that. Yeah, imagine movie. the cathartic moment where Charlie has to roll his real dad into the river so that the slime can be washed off of him and he can be at peace. Um, I'm not saying that's the way, you know, criticize the story he wrote, not the story you think he should have wrote, written, and I, that might be a dumb idea, but I'm just saying there's all kinds of crazy stuff you could do with that. Yeah. Well, he, in the case of Bobby Reynolds, he wanted to give, very clearly wanted to give Charlie a chance to confront him. He wanted to give us a chance to to see that Bobby, you know, you, you've made this point off mic about this, that the point of, of monsters is that they're stand-ins. And here we have the real monster and also the stand-ins. And maybe that's a problem. Maybe that's not something that we had been talking about. But, you know, he wants to give everybody the chance to make the connection that Bobby's the monster for it to not be okay, for it to be a real problem. And then for Bobby to not be redeemed and to still have a redemptive moment. That's really hard to do. I think he, I think. While agreeing with you over the, I mean, the ambition is good. And I don't know how you would do it. I mean, I just, I I guess I sort of think like, what I said to you off mic was, wouldn't it be weird if in Dracula, uh, Lucy or Mina also had a dad that molested them or been abusive? Because we've already got Dracula basically doing these acts that stand in for great sexual abuse. It's weird to combine metaphor and reality like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm. I think I would have, again, 
not to write the book for Andy Wilson, I think I would have preferred something bigger. I mean, I, I just think uh, the wonderful thing about horror and supernatural literature is that it is so brazenly and unashamedly metaphorical and that you can use it that way. So if you're going to have Charlie get some kind of closure with his dad, the direction I would have liked to have seen it gone would have been a supernatural one of some type, you know, some big metaphor, because you're playing in a world where you can use big metaphors. So it seems seems like kind of a shame to just have Charlie say, well, dad, just because you uh, are trying to help me now, it doesn't make it all okay. You know, good for Charlie, but uh, let's have his dad turn into a grin and then he has to roll him into the water. That's what I really think should have happened. That's um, exactly what I was thinking. His um, dad would have been the grin. <laughs> yeah. Or, or, or have, uh, you know... I don't know what I'm not. I'm, we can't in one podcast sitting solve all the problems of how you would do it. And certainly the way I would do it wouldn't be the same way that Nate Wilson would do it. And Nate Wilson is a much more published writer than I am or probably yeah. ever will be. And it just has the issue that has the problem of trying to hit too many notes mm-hmm. instead of just playing the one note. And as someone who likes the melody that is supernatural fiction, I'm just like, you had a good supernatural story going. Give us that. Be boldly metaphorical. And Why not? I, I think I came at it a, a different way, which is, yeah, it's a pretty good cane sugar and football and daddy story. And why'd you tack on the supernatural stuff? Yeah. Well, I think that's totally valid. And I think that's when you put a bunch yeah. of genre elements into a blender and hit puree, that's always something you're going to run into is... It just know. makes it that much more ambitious and difficult to pull off. And that's, you know, that's the whole conflict. That's what we're trying to yeah it makes it out it makes it uneven and if you can't make it where it's not uneven i got to imagine that some of these issues were clear mm-hmm. to him so yeah i mean there's a nice it may well be a lack of pretentiousness and preciousness on nate wilson's part that he's willing to just say you know what this is a fun story for boys and yeah let's put everything in it that boys will like yep. yeah football and monsters yep and sure another four or five drafts, another year of work, you might have a book that we'd all be sitting here much more awed by, but, Was you know. it worth uh, time or... Yeah. Dickens wrote a lot of stuff that I wish that he would have been able to take out of his novels, but it doesn't change the fact that I still enjoy Dickens. There are things that I really wish had been done differently, but in the end... It's fine. I mean, a lot of our favorite books on the bookening, well, by a lot of our favorite books, I mean East of Eden. It's a very uneven book in some ways, but it's just like Steinbeck's just going to splash his soul on it. You know, what did Hemingway say? Writing's easy. All you have to do is bleed into a typewriter or that's what Steinbeck did, for instance, in East of Eden. And it made for a book with some bad writing and some great writing and some everything in between. And we loved it. And so we can't knock Nate Wilson for not being a pretentious, priggish perfectionist. I do wish that some of the magical stuff just some of the world building some of the exposition just would have been a little bit more clear yeah even cheesy the i think the reason that a lot of successful genre writers are bad writers is because sometimes bad writing helps a story like this like if 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 mother what's her face just was like dumping pure exposition with no poetry and just saying here's the world this is how it happens this is what the witch queen was doing and blah 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 that might actually sort of Yeah. And you Star Wars episodes one, two, th- two, and three haters can remember that, that if episodes one, two, and three were better, they might not be as good. The, the, the thing that keeps popping into my head is that Harry Potter is not a well-written book. In many ways, it's a much less stylistically ambitious and interesting book, but there are ways in which the story carries you through better. 
that may be because of J.K. Rowling's weaknesses. Like she's just going to give you that real clear, you're an idiot exposition about what the place looked like, how it felt, what the, yeah. you know, Dumbledore needs to get to here. He needs to drink the thing from the goblet and this will have this effect on Voldemort's evil plan. The rules become very clear. The rules and, have and to be clear and the rules have to, in fantasy or sci-fi or horror stuff, they, the rules have to feel inevitable. Yeah. You know, it doesn't, you can't feel, it's, it's always just going to be a hodgepodge of things that the you know George Lucas liked laser swords and knights and westerns and all this stuff but you watch Star Wars and the one thing that I'd say even the worst Star Wars movie does is the world feels fairly inevitable like oh yeah of course there's a galactic senate again episodes one two and three we'll stick with them of course there's a galactic senate. of course of course there's sith of course there's only two sith because they'd kill each other off george lucas is really good at thinking through whatever else you want to say about his terrible dialogue and all that he's really good at thinking through those kinds of worlds and how to build them out and how they should function and you don't question the as boring and stupid of a choice as it was to have a trade federation you don't ever find yourself questioning the fact that there would be a trade federation and that they, they would be these kinds of bureaucrats you know, and that's where this book kind of, again, isn't as good as it could have been because the expositions just doesn't like, like some of the stuff just doesn't feel inevitable. When you get good fantasy, you know that the rules were there in the first place. And even if it's a mystery at first, when you finally get to what's actually happening. So it was the weakness with like Lost, right? Mm-hmm. You had all these stone like this like these white stone sort of things or the drawings on the church wall it seems like something amazing is going to happen and it's going to be neat and it's the secret's going to be revealed and then it never all comes together so we don't know why the stones have to be there we don't know what in the world the runes on the church were all these it's just yeah Yeah, and even when you were talking earlier about you know how Leo gets sort of, sort of turns into a dog that runs off to get killed. There are ways to to solve Leo, keep Leo awesome, but make Charlie have to be the hero. It just comes down to the rules of the yeah. of of the of the universe. Yeah, and those rules aren't established. And so, if the rules were there, the grin—I don't know what he was trying to do with the grin. Maybe they weren't supposed to be that terrifying. They were maybe supposed to be more sympathetic, like a zombie. But those rules, at first, they feel ominous. Yeah. But then we don't really know. Are they ominous? Are they comedic? Or what's going on with them? And then... And then, you know, they make you feel bad and feel hatred and resentment through their smell. That's an interesting idea. A monster where whenever you're in proximity, the danger isn't just the monster. It's the danger that you might murder your best friend. That's that's a, that's a cool idea. But it just doesn't... Yeah. It's just another cool idea that's... They're all cool ideas. But usually when you have a world-ending possibility, like is in this novel, the stakes are higher. And the stakes never get all that high. Even down to the fact that Mother Wisdom is sort of cool with it. She's like, yeah, well, all good things come to an end. That's a nod to the old... I think we talked about it, the fact that the monsters are always on the outside and we're in our little cove here and the monsters are trying to get in and eventually we'll die, but at least we'll die together. I think a good counterpoint to this book and one that I'm sure Andy Wilson is very familiar with that we read a couple months ago is That Hideous Strength, which is full of absolute nonsense, rubbish. I mean, it's just like <laughs> stuff that that C.S. Lewis liked, giant hodgepodge. And he just- Merlin. Did, yeah. Yeah. Merlin's here and the bad guys are doing this and there's this whole cosmos which I Nathan don't understand because I haven't read the other two stupid books but it all works you all it all kind of feels like oh yeah of course the animals attacked and I think sometimes that's just giving you the giving the gibberish its breathing room and letting it settle you know a movie I always think of is Ghostbusters what a ridiculously arbitrary universe that movie you know don't cross the streams 
okay, now we're going to cross the streams and it's going to do something cool. Why? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Mesopotamian gods are coming through a port. Why? Ghosts, uh, why? Why? But it exists in this universe. But it exists in that universe, and they clearly spend the time. I was actually talking to a friend of mine at work not too long ago who was using Ghostbusters because he said, I hate ghost movies because there's never any rules. That's actually what he said is, I don't like ghost movies because it's always just like someone's walking around in a house and something scary is going to pop up and I never know why. And I said, okay, well, is Ghostbusters really any better because they give you a bunch of arbitrary stuff that there's some character spends five minutes saying blah, 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 a bunch of absolute nonsense that has no correlation to reality whatsoever. And he said, yes, Ghostbusters is a hundred percent better because it has a character a couple characters spend some time saying rubbish and I think that's actually there, there may be some wisdom to my my friend like we need the part where mother wisdom is just like the knights have gone back for a thousand generations and blah 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 and here's the history and it all ties into king arthur or to the beowulf legend and and then she just lays it out and it's real solid and it might be really ultimately if you think about it too much ridiculous and maybe that's one of the reasons why he didn't do it is because he wants to be a little bit more artistic and stand back from that kind of stuff a little bit more but i think at a certain point does it yeah Yeah, beowulf does it beowulf's just like he was a the spawn of Cain. What's not to understand? Grimm's fairy tales do it. Eat this apple and you'll turn into a donkey. That's how the apple works. And most good fantasy, even if it doesn't do it directly like that, it finds a way to do it. Yeah. Tolkien, I mean, is the go-to example there, I suppose. I mean, it all feels inevitable. The world makes sense. The world makes sense. And there was a way for this world to have made sense, but I get the sense that he might not even know why the stones were there and all this. And there was just, it felt cool to have the stones keeping them from out from getting into town but and it's like any reason that he could have come up with would have been stupid i mean it would have been like but that's fine the wizards of america all decided to put you know king Mm. arthur traveled to america you know i i can't even come up with a good one what would a good one be anything to just anchor it would have been fine old man withers he first discovered that there were monsters that 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 this uh Swamp was a portal to hell, and old he was into the ancient secrets of the Babylonians. So, and he had the book of Amun Ra from Babylon, and so he took the book of Amun Ra, which he had studied because his ancestry went back, and he read the 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 spell of Magadum, and he read it over the fifteen stones. You know, I mean, just throw some, just make some crap up. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you should have done is made more crap up, Andy Wilson. It would have helped, I think. And maybe you do in your 100 Cupboard series. I don't know. So maybe the, the the final point of criticism that I had for this book had to do with the writing style. And it actually really bothered me as I was reading the book because I couldn't figure out at first why some of the writing wasn't hitting me. Because the, the first thing I noticed was that he's not lazy. His word choices are interesting, that he's obviously put some thought into this. He's not just going for the winding rivers. That's the only one I can think of today. Or the golden sunset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. He's not just going for winding rivers, golden sunsets, uh, quaint, babbling brooks. quaint curiosity shop, beloved mothers. Babbling brooks is a good one. He is obviously thinking about how can I make this prose interesting and unique and different and exciting and how can I come up with new metaphors that will go into your brain and make you see things in a new way so why isn't it blowing me away I love it when writers do that 
And it wasn't that it was necessarily terrible, like I basically understood the whole story, but it didn't, it wasn't any more vivid to me than a J.K. Rowling or somebody like that would have been. And I thought, he's obviously trying harder than J.K. Rowling or her editors do, so why isn't it working? Do you have an answer? Did you guys feel the same way, first yeah, of all? Yeah, yeah, I was I pretty the frustrated these scenes that were clearly supposed to be evocative, I didn't find them to be evocative. I didn't feel like he was actually painting pictures for me. I felt like he was singing songs. This is certainly, I don't know how characteristic it is of the rest of his writing, but probably in the tradition of Beowulf trying to be very lyrically minded and poetical sounding. That seems to be the emphasis of, of his prose when he's when he's really working hard to create a new metaphor to paint a picture. But it just doesn't just doesn't quite work. Yeah, one of the scenes that comes to mind is where he has that dream sequence. I think it's right when he goes to he wakes up and he's with the grandmother, Wisdom or whatever mm. her name is. You ever forget you remember this? And then there's some sort of embrace and all this, but it's just like one thing to the other and it's more the rhythm of the words than it is that the dream actually matters to the story. Right. He'll describe a scene. Yeah. Right. So you have this these breathless moments and then suddenly Charlie's laying flat on his back and staring at the sky and we're going to get because Charlie's now finally able to rest. We're going to get a description of yeah. the sky and the clouds and the sun and everything around. It's supposed to slow us down like Charlie's slow, slowing down. And the, the problem is... But it sounds pretty. Yes, it sounds pretty, it's, but it doesn't but do any... And that's because it's lyrical. It's not the other thing that I don't know what the word for is. It doesn't, like you were saying, it doesn't paint the picture. I don't, really good literature, like when you read, well, like To Kill a Mockingbird, you get a real sense of what that place is like. Dickens, you get a real sense of what London would have been like. Here, I don't feel like I know what Florida's like at all. Yeah. I kept looking for a letter that Raymond Chandler wrote, uh, because as we know, I'm a big Raymond Chandler fan and a particularly big fan of his descriptive powers. Raymond Chandler, the detective novelist, if you haven't listened to the other 37, 38 episodes of uh, The Bookening and you don't know who Raymond Chandler is, he did the Philip Marlowe novels. He was a he was a good stylist. I'm a big fan of his style. He wrote a letter to somebody where he was talking about a novel that he'd read. And this, this occurred to this. I remembered this letter as I was reading it and it kept being a reference point for me as I was reading Boys of Blur. He was talking about a, I wish I could remember exactly what it was. He took a passage out of a novel that was popular in his day. I think a detective novel where a car was described as being acneed with rust and he didn't like that metaphor. And the reason he didn't like that metaphor is because he said it's a very clever metaphor, but it takes you three seconds to get an image in your head out of it. I'm paraphrasing Raymond Chandler here, but you know, he said, you have to think about acne and think about, and uh, the guy that wrote this was obviously a very smart guy, but just saying spotted with rust, as lame as that is, is better because you immediately say, oh, spotted with rust. There are spots, rust, spots, image. Acneed with rust is too clever, too interesting. But awfully writerly. But awfully writerly and probably felt good. Like I'm coming up with a new metaphor for what rust is and a very sort of, if you think about it, interesting one. Acneed with rust is kind of brilliant in its own little way. And yet it sticks out as a brilliant thing while not doing the job that writing is actually supposed to do, which is to transport you. To evoke you, a rusty car. To, to make you see a rusty car. Yeah. A good writer, they have the in, they have that instinct for like that one detail that will make the scene or make the character. So some of the things I was thinking about, the scene where he's with a scythe with all the peasants, Levin mm-hmm. and Anna Karenina, then the raindrops on his back. That just immediately, it puts you there. And then, or the final scene 
where I spoiled it for Jake, but right before he dies, where Robert Jordan touches the tree. And for whom the bell right? It's just that, yeah, it's just that thing, that movement that he does to touch the tree. It's these little instincts that a good writer has. The good writers have that instinct. It's there. Yeah, Tolstoy has it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Austin, it's those little quirks that make her characters just immediately stand out to you. And it's hard to put your finger on it, but you know when that fire's there. But when it's not there, the story just sounds like somebody's trying to tell you a a story you should find interesting, but there's just not that Mm -hmm. thing there that should be there. And I think that neatly explains why cliched, lazy writer like J.K. Rowling might paint a better picture in some sense than he does, because she's just going to tell you the river was winding, the sunset was golden and hey it might be a lazy cliche but yes picture a go i know what a golden sunset looks like and i sure do know what a winding river looks like but and also to her credit everybody knows who ron hermione harry dumbledore they all have character to them hagrid so she has something that she's able to do yeah and what's interesting is that uh, somebody like harry uh, you know he's a boy with a scar and some glasses jake knows that and Jake hasn't read Harry Potter. It's the point. And you'll always, but you'll always remember Harry, Scar, glasses. Charlie, like his whole, he's, he's, he's completely described. Like there's a whole paragraph of he was a boy with this kind of hair and these kinds of eyes and this sort of body type. And I don't remember it. I don't remember what kind of a paragraph really in there. Yeah. The detail that tells, as somebody other said, there's not the one detail that tells. Yeah. That's a good way of putting what I've been trying to say. It's not original with me. I have no idea who it is original with, but... um, I just think that's something you see universally throughout. And so people, when they see it in Dickens, they think his his characters are cartoons, but you know, you remember his characters. Yeah. Well, and probably if we, if we do a little experiment and think about, we can probably tell you what the detail is in certain books that are evocative of place or of character. Yeah, Steinbeck was brilliant at it. Yeah. With Steinbeck, I always actually think of Grapes of Wrath, and there's a thing about the cracked red earth. Yeah. And it's just like, it stuck with me. I couldn't tell yeah. you where that cracked red earth appears in the story or what purpose it serves, but I know that in Grapes of Wrath, there's some cracked red earth. In Salinas Valley, I can picture Salinas Valley from... Uh, whatever that stupid book is, East of Eden. I could tell you that Kathy is small. Petite. Like, she's petite. She has way. little hands. She gets plump as she's older. Yeah. Because those details all inform her particular brand of evil. So that's a good example. Steinbeck, uh, Robert Jordan, of course, is, I mean, Hemingway's good at that kind of stuff. That's all over the great writers, and it la- is lacking in the bad ones, so... Brahms Stoker, he doesn't have it. And it also doesn't necessarily make you a great storyteller if that's all you do either. And Marilyn Robinson, she had those moments. She was just a giant grab bag of those moments. And if I'd been on that podcast, I would have said I wasn't a huge fan of the book. Um, Yeah, and so... You were comparing her to... Or you were comparing Lord Byron and Coleridge before we started. Yeah, I was, wasn't I? What was I saying? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Lord Byron, he's all style and he was very, he was fantastic at just the structure and the classicism of poetry, but I don't like Byron. Byron has never appealed to me. Me neither. And, you know, Coleridge was rougher around the edges. Coleridge may be a bad example. Wordsworth is definitely rougher around the edges, but I love their poetry. All style and no substance makes Brandon a sad boy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just interesting. I thought I wouldn't have spent so much time, you know, like we said, we we didn't set out to want to say anything all that negative about the book, but I just thought it was fascinating that the style could be so obviously have effort in it and so obviously be sort of lyrical, have a certain ear to it. You know, it's not just ham-fisted. He's doing something and it's not bad. Uh, The other thing I thought of was the Mark Twain quote, 
the fam- I think it's Mark Twain who said the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. And I'm just like, you know, this book is full of like almost right words. But if he just found the right one, if he just found that detail, like Brandon said, to make you feel that sugar cane, to make you feel what Taper was like. I mean, was Taper old? Was it, were, uh, I know there was a church on a hill. I'm not really sure what the rest of the town looked like. There was a bell. There was a bell. I know that swamp was swampy and had swampishness. Yeah, I mean, just reading just a random sentence, an awful reek floated across the turf like cold air. It's fine. It kind of does the work, but it doesn't really. Yeah, it's like, it's almost right. Yeah, cold air floats and so does reeks, but what is particularly reeky about cold air? Yeah, you know? so there's just something slightly. Warm air, warm air would have been much better. Warm air. It had me Googling descriptive passages from literature and looking up my favorite ones just to make sure that, just to see how they how they compared. Well, at the end of the day, the point is that you thought about it as you read it. Yeah. Every time you got to the, these descriptionary passages, you stopped and thought, what's going on here? And try you had to do some work to wrap your mind around it. Then you started thinking about style and you started thinking about how people use style and why this style feels out of place. And is it on purpose? And if so, to what effect? Is it a good effect? Is it a bad effect? And at the end of the day, here you are thinking about style and what you're supposed to be doing is being sucked into a fast-paced adventure story for boys who are nine and ten years old. And that's the real virtue, by the way, since we spent so much time knocking him last year of Hemingway. Hemingway is a wonderfully rich, great, perfect stylist, and yet he never distracts. It's like even Robinson, it's like so so much of the time you're like, wow, that was some great style. With Hemingway, it's just like Robert Jordan did a thing, and you're thinking about what happened, not what how he wrote about it. So what's, what's interesting is that that's completely true. And I, I see Hemingway, I, if we're going to talk about scenes and visuals and whatever, we made the point in the podcast about Hemingway that he's um, cinematic. cinematic. That's the word I was looking for. Thank you. He's cinematic. And so you, you watch the movie of, as, uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls as you read it. And there's something about Wilson that is very similar in cinematic, but like cinematic almost with a mask on or something. There's something yeah, like... in front of the screen. The action is cinematic, mm-hmm. right? The the pacing is cinematic. Uh, there's so much that I feel is cinematic about this book as compared to a lot of other things. But when it, when it get, you get to like the places where you actually need to see things, you it goes opaque with writerliness, with lyrical poetry that doesn't really grab you or hit you the way that everything else is trying to hit you in terms of the pacing and the story. I think a lot of it probably, if I have to imagine what he was trying to do was get those sort of sounds that Beowulf has in it. But Beowulf does more than just have the sounds. And so you can't just have the rhythms of the sentence without also having the crisp, perfect image like bone cruncher. Yeah. Word hoard. Word hoard. I mean, Beowulf's full of those sorts of things. The perfect word for the perfect thing the per- the perfect word that describes that object for you and you suddenly see it and you know what they're talking about and beowulf's an interesting example because it's pretty in some ways not lyric like it's just brutally angle anglo-saxon just like he pulled out his bone cruncher you yeah know. yeah it's more chompy and yeah. aggressive <laughs> it's germanic you know it's yeah. you're gonna choke on the words as they come out you know, there are, like, Robinson, I don't mind that she sort of drew me out of the store. You know, if someone's good enough at style that sometimes you just want to sit back and bask in the style, I'm not going to mind that. But that is the province of geniuses, generally speaking, even though I don't think Robinson's a genius. But um, she might be a genius style. Like, 
Raymond well, Chandler is somebody that I like to, sometimes I do just like to stop and I'm glad that his metaphor was so wonderful that it took me out of the story because I'm happy to just be sitting there contemplating the metaphor. But he wanted it too. That's the whole point behind the whole mystical dust. Right. Was you were supposed to think about how you're just stardust. Well, that's where I almost think, this is going to sound real super condescending, but I don't mean it to. <laughs> if, 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 if we were workshopping this, like if uh, we had our, our little student, Andy Wilson here, and we were going to say, how do you make this better? I, t- I think what I might say is just just be willing to be bad. Just be willing to give us the terrible exposition that we need to understand the story. Just be willing to give us the stupid character beats that are obvious, the stupid sitcom character beats that make us understand the characters. And just be willing to say that a sunset's golden or to be purple in your prose. And I bet if you did that, this story would come alive. And we would also probably be sitting here like jerks making fun of all the stuff that was over the top and kind of purple and unsubtle about it. But I, 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 I suspect, I will postulate, Brandon, that uh, if, if this story was about uh, 20% poorer in the way that it was told and in the things that it did, it would probably get a 60% boost of vividness and energy. I think that's true. Yeah, or maybe what he should be doing is taking some of those very lyrical writerly chops and applying them to something that that better suits if that's what he really likes and wants to do. You know, notes from the Tilt World actually pulled that off pretty darn well. Yeah, like if that's, you just Google uh, N.D. Wilson quotes, he's written some really memorable stuff. Yes. Yeah. That's I mean that's Jake just found a way to say what I was thinking, but from a cinematic perspective, that's why uh, that the tilt a whirl, what they call they gave a name for a bookumentary or something right. like that, right? That's why it works so well. Is you're able to pair these brilliant visual images with this writerly lyrical prose that's muscular and masculine too, and it created something nice on screen that really worked together in harmony with one another. That's interesting, by the, by the way, that you say masculine, because that was the other thing that really was a disconnect in my brain in reading this, was that usually prose is very effeminate. When there's that gauze over the cinema screen of my mind and I can't see what's going on, it's because the writer is being academic and effeminate and not using good old Anglo-Saxon, but just using a bunch of Latin. Um, but that was not the case here. No, he is vivid and he is muscular, which is why it was so one of the reasons it was so weird to me that that I wasn't seeing the story in bright, bold colors in my mind. Yeah, I mean, I think Jake hit it on the head. Mm -hmm. Well, that's why when I say like be worse, I understand that worse actually is worse. This has lyricism. It has muscularity and it avoids cliche. And those are three wonderful traits for writing to have. You know, I don't know. I look at the J.K. Rawlings and the Stephen Kings and their writing isn't good, but it paints a picture. And ultimately, that's what fiction has to do. Well, guys, we need to decide. We have a new award to award this book, which would be if we decide indeed to award it. But the award that it's up for would be the Bookening Young Adult Seal of Approval. The much coveted B-Y-A-S-O-A, which we should establish the rules. I think that means, is it a book that you would, not that you particularly think is a magical, transporting, wonderful, mind-blowing book for yourself, but would would you give it to the child for whom it is written? First, perhaps we should say, what child is this written for? A boy? More than a girl, maybe? 
Yeah, yeah, easily more for boys than girls. And what age? It's self-consciously that way. You know, Charlie at some point's like, where are all the girls in this story? Right. Uh, so what is this? Did you, Peter's reading it and enjoying it. You said he's nine. He's nine. He just turned nine. He's probably he's on the young side of it, though, right? Yeah, very much on the young side of it, I would say. So nine to 15, do we want to say that's the about what we're looking at here? Yeah, sure. The BYASOA is defined as, do we approve... Are we going to give it the booking young adult seal of approval because we think it is a good book to give to a young boy age nine to between 13 and 15 or not? Yes, I give it seal of approval. That's Unmitigated? My Unmitigated, yeah. I don't have any hesitations. One, it's fast paced and it's fun. It's got a lot of cool, fun, interesting things that my boys are going to love. Peter's picked it up. He's already started reading it and he hid it under his pillow. And he thinks it would be really cool to find a surprise step second cousin who's automatically his best friend. And what we have is a very Christian sort of story without being ham-fisted. We've got boys who are actual boys. They're allowed to be boys. You have a dad that wants them to be masculine. You have this world in which it's good for boys to be out and taking risks. And um, well, mom and dad aren't either either gone or morons, which is like genre- defying the rule of this genre. Absolutely. So they're there. They're present. They're great. They give freedom to their 12-year-old boy. They allow him to take risks. He takes risks. He takes risks and makes sacrifices for people he loves and cares about. In that sense, it's, it's going to train uh, the imagination of of a son in really good ways, in ways that you're not going to find such strong and wholesome messages very often in this genre, I suspect. And especially, you know, if we look to Newberry, you know, what we're going to find is politically correct weirdness. Mumbo-jumbo. Mumbo-jumbo. And so uh, it's interesting. It's got great elements of story, all of the great elements of it, uh, or all the elements of a great story that we talked about early on. Good kids, good good moral of the story, good outcome, good wins in the end. There's nothing cynical about it. So, yeah, absolutely. I want my sons to read this book and books like it. Very good. Brandon, your vote? Unmitigated. Unmitigated, B-Y-A-S-O-A? In fact, I'm probably going to go home and let Alyssa and Elliot read this. So there we go. Alyssa wants to, and Elliot wants to as well after I told him what it was about. So Care to give your reasons or Jake already expressed my reasons very eloquently. Hmm. All right. Uh, I guess that leaves me. I'm going to give it a mitigated B-Y-A-S-O-A. I, I, I do not have any problem with a kid reading this and I think it would be good. And I think everything Jake said was hundred percent true. I don't feel like it's completely unreasonable to expect that maybe it could have been, been better in the ways that we talked about. I will say, like, I read those Frank Peretti books the, that Brandon mentioned earlier. I think we talked about them in our children's uh, in our children's episodes. We talked about the Frank Peretti books where that's like an Indiana Jones riff. It's a young, young adult's novels. They go into tombs and some demonic forces always trying to get them. And there's, fly, you know, very Indiana Jones Pretty meets... Bad stuff. What's that? Pretty bad stuff. Pretty bad stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the Door to the Dragon's Throat, I believe, was one. Gotta close up that dragon's throat. And I think there's something quite fun about your first time experiencing a genre trope that you maybe haven't experienced. So I kind of smile wistfully like... 
I just didn't remember. Like in, when when Jake just told us now that Peter said how cool it would be to have a cousin who was suddenly his best friend that uh, warmed the cockles, the the heretofore cold cockles of my heart, and made me think I should give this a seal of approval where I might have been a little bit more on the fence before because it just reminded me the book's not for me, and a lot of the stuff that we said, even the problems, are going to work better. Like Peter. A kid is going to bring all kinds of stuff to this book simply because they're reading about an ancient evil invading a small town for the first time. And that's really fun. And I have a lot of sentiment. If if some young kid is just experiencing quest literature and fantasy literature and ancient evil literature and all that stuff and some of these tropes for the first time, I cannot begrudge him. I can only encourage him because I think genre literature is fun. I have a soft spot for it. And I think the thing themes and things that he's playing with are fun and it's wholesome. I like that the, I like that dad and mom are around. I like Mac. I like Charlie. I like that it doesn't try and cram a bunch of obnoxious Christianity uh, down your throat. So I will give it B-Y-A-O-A. Final thoughts, anyone, anyone? I think that was my final thought. That was your final thought? Like you're about to die? <laughs> I didn't mean final thoughts about the book. I just oh. meant like, I just pushed a button and gas is coming into this room. You're oh, going to die. Uh... So if you want to give any final thoughts. No, that's fine. Final that's thoughts. fine. It's <laughs> fine. Jake? Hakuna Matata. <laughs> what a, what a wonderful phrase. phrase. <laughs> <laughs> Credits. The booking was written and performed by me. It was. Oh, I ran out of steam. Not much meta. Performed by. <laughs> what? Performed by. Nathan Alberson. Brandon Chastain. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Performed by Brandon Chastain. Jacob Menzel. Facebook, Twitter. The dead. The things. Instagram. Instagram. Patreon.com. Brandon, sing it for us. P A T R E O N.com. Slash forward slash the booking. Forward slashes are dumb. Meta. Just saying things that pop into my head. Clowns. Elephants. Bultitude. What? Bultitude. Bultitude. Yay. Um. We're done. Good night. Support us on Patreon.